0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations.
1: Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Alan Noble, who's a professor and the author of a recent book, You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World. Today, we talk about the false promises of contemporary life and how the gospel reorients our pursuit of identity in the digital age. Dr. Noble is an associate professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University, the co-founder and editor-in-chief at Christ in Pop Culture, and advisor to the And Campaign. He's also the author of Disrupted Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age. His writing has been featured in numerous outlets, including The Atlantic, Fox, BuzzFeed, The Gospel Coalition, Christianity Today, and First Things. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Alan, thank you so much for joining me again here on the Digital Public Square. Last time we talked on the podcast, uh, we were talking about your latest book, Disruptive Witness, and about Charles Taylor's thesis in a secular age, about how we can have better conversations with our neighbors and our friends. And you teased this book out a little bit that we're talking today. So as we get started, can you give us a little of the background behind this present work and some of your goals in writing it?
0: Well, I had two sort of big uh, pressures or inspirations from this. One, I was thinking about a lot of the contemporary issues that evangelicals and conservatives were discussing in the public square. Issues related to, you know, political issues or sex, gender orientation issues or life issues. And a lot of them, it seemed to me, hinged on this question of our basic anthropology, to whom do we belong, Right. And I I had been thinking about the Heidelberg Catechism first question and answer, which is what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer given in the catechism is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul and life and death to our faithful Savior Jesus Christ. And so it, it struck me that so many of the challenges and the and wrestlings that we're having in society really hinge on the question of whether we belong to ourselves. Uh, and therefore have a kind of autonomy or whether we belong to someone else and then if to someone else, to whom do we belong? So that was happening sort of in the maybe intellectual, you know, side of me. But the other half, the lived experience half was wrestling with the fact that a lot of my life, a lot of the lives of people I knew, friends, students, family members, so on, were marked by these inhuman elements that the daily experience of life for many people I knew uh, was intolerable in some way. So for example, it was not uncommon to hear people say something like, well, I just need to get through the day, right? Um, Which is fine if there's a particularly bad day, but when it's every day where you're expressing this idea that I'm just trying to get through time, like time is something to be put up with to get to the other end, that's a problem. That's a sign of some some societal disorder. It seemed to me The way we're living is dysfunctional. Um, I live in Oklahoma and a couple of years ago, we passed a medical marijuana law. And once that happened, the billboards on our main, uh, interstate were filled with these messages that essentially said something to the effect of, um, is your life terrible? Get high. And it struck me as I saw these, like, so we're just going to openly admit that contemporary life doesn't work and we just have to numb ourselves. Like we're just not even going to pretend that there's any any medical reason behind this anymore. It's just, let's just just admit it. And surely that is a sign of deep societal dysfunction. And so at, at a certain point, I connect these two ideas and I think, okay, well, perhaps What would happen if a society was constructed based on that false anthropology I thought about earlier, this idea that we belong to ourselves? Could that create some deep friction in our lives if, in fact, that's not true about us? If God made us to belong to him, but everyone around us treats us and expects us to live as if we belong to ourselves, surely that would create deep anxiety, angst, frustration, depression, all these other things. And that's, that's the premise of the book. So it was, to answer your question, sparked by, both this intellectual idea and then just some real lived experience. My hope is, it's kind of an interesting hope. My hope is, on the one hand, I want to lift what in the book I call these responsibilities of self-belonging. I want to help people recognize that they are are a lie, that our society has taught us that we have to bear. It's an unbearable, uh, it's a soul-crushing responsibility that we can't Carry, Um, So that gets lifted off. But I also want us to embrace the natural and rightly ordered obligations that God has given us, which are still very hard, but they are good and they are manageable. And that's a big distinction. Yeah. And so
1: let's drill in on a little but obviously that's kind of the main premise of the book and where you're heading. But early on in the book, you talk about some of the defining features of modern life is that we inhabit a deeply inhumane society or kind of um, dehumanized society in many ways. You talked about that with the billboards, about this kind of numbing our life because if, if everything's so terrible, you know, get high, that'll make you feel better. What are some of the other ways that you have seen that we live in kind of a deeply inhumane society, especially in modern life? So I'm going to give
0: a couple of they might seem idiosyncratic examples, but the reason they are idiosyncratic is that uh, we could actually go on for hours talking about them, and that's part of the point. Is that it's not so much that there are major things or major moments or situations pressuring us with these inhumane with inhumane treatment, which can sometimes happen, but it's the accumulation of lots of tiny dehumanizing uh, moments. So. For example, I recently read a uh, – I believe there's a Harvard Business Review uh, published an article uh, about – they did some survey. Some company did some survey on what benefits uh, employees wanted most. So what is it that they – that would improve their quality of life most? And the, the number one thing they said was natural lighting. And uh, well, on the surface, I'm very sympathetic because natural lighting does have all these benefits. Um, but when I reflected on that, I thought if if people are asking to see sunlight, okay, and that is um, <laughs> that's the number one thing they want, that means that the norm is people don't get to see the sun clear. Why is that not? That should be alarm bell should be going off in our heads that we we've di- ordered our lives so dysfunctionally that this basic thing that we see the sun and it warms us and it gives us these all these benefits that's that's not the norm so that we're begging for it and what was really compelling to me about this in a in a frightening way was that the article went on and it was uh, it sort of shifted after it said okay here's our study this is the the findings and then it was an appeal to business owners and the appeal was essentially you shouldn't. In fact, give your employees this natural sunlight. Why? Because it will make them more productive. And that's a major part of this inhuman element of our lives that we face is that, as I I talk about in the book, and I'm getting this from this sociologist-philosopher Jacques Ellul, uh, technique, the idea of efficiency being the ultimate good, is often an assumed premise in our society. And that was the idea behind this article. The article did not say, hey, your employees should have natural sunlight because that's how we were created, is that we should see the sun. Instead, it was... Well, you should give this to your employees because that will make them more productive, and that's really what fundamentally matters. So that's a that's a small thing. Another thing I, I often think about is the fact that if you have to take care of a bill or call your bank or a credit card or anything like that, a medical bill, it's nearly impossible to talk to another another person. And again, this is a small thing. But what ends up happening, and I feel this every time I have to do this, and I'm, I'm on hold for 30 minutes, it feels like I don't really matter, that I have to talk to a computer over and over and try to trick the computer. I have to try to figure out how to con the computer into giving me, uh, you know, putting me on a waiting list for a human being. So again, it's just lots of little ways that we construct our society uh, dysfunctionally.
1: It reminds me of a few years ago when Google, at one of their developer conferences, talked about Google Duplex which was an AI system that would mimic kind of human interaction. So you could call into a restaurant, book a table, and at the time when they released it, you couldn't tell, or in the system didn't inform you that you were talking to a computer or an AI system in that sense. And so it was this very human kind of touch in some sense in that you were having a more natural conversation, but on the other side, you were talking to a computer, which is obviously not human. And so you saw that real tension. There was a lot of excitement around the technology, but then also a lot of kind of leeriness of, hey, this is weird. Like, is this kind of the direction we want to go as a society? One of the things that I really appreciate about your book is you balance not only some of the more academic kind of intellectual tasks, but also a lot of the practical stuff as well. Can you give us – I think one of the big questions, I guess, and you see this in different authors, whether it's Elul or Taylor or others, is that there's always kind of this meta-narrative. There's this narrative of how we got to where we are. How would you describe that? Like how did we get to this place in society or modern culture uh, where it's deeply inhuman in the ways that we interact with one another, the technologies we use? How, did, how do you see us getting
0: to this place in, uh, in history? That's a really big question, and it's interesting because I think I thought I knew, and then the more I've considered this, the more I feel like I can't even speak into it because I think it's so complicated. There are a couple of threads that I I can tease out. So one is what Taylor would talk about, which is the the move towards secularization. So that has a very distinct and powerful effect on things. Uh, So for example— in general, when we believe that there is a sense of moral order outside of us that towards which we have to move in life. So it gives us goals, it gives us visions, it gives us an eschaton, um, a telos, but it also helps us understand our horizontal relationships, right? So how do I relate to man? Uh, How do I relate to creation? How do I relate to work and all these sorts of things? You really are oriented in the world. You are oriented, you're placed, and then gives you a kind of foundation. That doesn't mean that your orientation was correct, but it did give you at least the experience of some kind of orientation. Well, after that slowly starts to collapse, especially, I mean, it starts in the Enlightenment, but it it continues through, especially the First World War, uh, there's this dramatic drop. And uh, the result is that people feel like they're, they're falling through space or they're, um, they're untethered, you know, and Nietzsche uses the image, I, I think, of uh, kicking the earth free from the sun, right? So the, there's this idea that there's no longer these natural laws, these gravitational pulls, these things that orient you and give you hope. And well, so and I think you know, kind of the implication I have, have in the book is once you make that sharp turn, what will happen is that the only thing you can rest upon is your own I- existence. And I guess what I'm describing there is a, is a kind of existentialism. Yeah, you, don't, you don't know who you are, but you know that you exist in the world. And so who do you belong to? Well, the only one you know you belong to is yourself. So that's one way of understanding it is through the process of secularization. But I think the markets have a huge role to play here. Polit- you know, there's, there's all kinds of things, but that's, that's one understanding. Yeah, I know one of the kind of interesting stories that pushed me a little bit was
1: reading Jacques Ellul's Technological Society, who you quote a lot throughout the book, not only this specific work, Technological Society, but some of his others as well. And you open one of the chapters up with this quote that I just love from him. He says, The milieu in which man lives is no longer his. He must adapt himself as though the world were new to a universe for which he was not created. And I love that quote because it kind of sums up Alul talks throughout his work almost like a technological history and kind of retelling kind of the modern story in light of the rise of technology. So can you help us to understand a little bit about how modern society misinterprets human nature, kind of the lies that we're told uh, today and some of the implications of this false understanding of who we are?
0: So the, the the argument I make in the book, as I mentioned earlier, is that society assumes that we are each only ever our own and we only belong to ourselves. And that has all kinds of ramifications. So one of them, for example, is that we start thinking primarily in terms of uh, instrumental work. So other people become instruments or tools that we can use, other forms of technology really that we could use to get ahead Right, so um, I think when you consider the the, the rise of, of pornography, um, it seems to me that that's a way of instrumentalizing other human beings and their existence, their bodies, for your own pleasure. And uh, if fundamentally you just belong to yourself, then that is the only person you owe uh, moral allegiance to. That is the only person you have to be uh, assured is making something meaningful out of their out of their lives. So there are all kinds of ramifications that come out of that. You start to believe that your life is a project and uh, you're the only one who can guide that project, who can work on that project, who decide when the project is, has achieved its fullness. And that disorders us in lots of ways. It puts a burden on us, a, a burden to constantly act and constantly pull ourselves up. Uh, another way of thinking about it, another aspect of this is belonging. So in the book, I write about these—I try to break it down to these five sort of categorical implications that overlap, but it's a useful way of understanding them. Uh, The first is justification, and then I think I do identity and meaning and value and belonging. And uh, belonging, I think, is a very powerful one because it describes our relationship and our bonds and natural obligations to other people and to creation and then, then of course, also to God— And so when we are our own and we fundamentally belong to ourselves, when the only thing we can really be certain of is that our lives are our own and we are responsible for making them rich, a good story, an interesting story, dramatic, exciting, so on and so forth – then bonds, relationships, belonging becomes what uh, this philosopher I love named Zygmunt Bauman calls until further notice. In other words, my relationship to my wife is until further notice. My relationship to my job is until further notice. My friendships are all until further notice. Now, that sounds crass, but that is very often how we are taught to think about our relationships because you need to have that sort of liquid quality to your relationships. It's fluid. Nothing's really tying you down in order for you to pursue the life that you want. And, and I, I could just think of so many instances, tragic instances of, of people I know and then certainly famous people where they're in a marriage and that at a, at a certain point in their life, they meet someone new or they decide that they've discovered something new about themselves and all of a sudden they realize that this discovery or this new relationships means that they're old bonds— Their old belonging to their wife and children no longer hold. They no longer matter. And I guess what what I would want to say is, well, you know what? If we are our own, you're right. You probably should abandon your family and pursue that because you're the only one who can make your life worth living. But if we belong to someone else, if we belong to Christ, then we have real obligations that cost us but are good.
1: Yeah, I think that's really helpful, especially as last time you were on the podcast, we talked about Taylor and expressive individualism, and we've talked about that concept a good bit here on the podcast lately with some other guests as well, but how those are kind of radically different understandings of what it means to be flourishing, uh, pursuing a flourishing society or human flourishing, or even the idea of the good life. And that's one of the reasons I really appreciate this book is because you help us to kind of reframe that, because I think often we don't realize the way that culture is shaping us and even the ways that technology itself is shaping us and kind of pushing us towards a particular end. So to that end, I guess, um, no pun intended, is how do you see technology in particular social media shaping our identities in the digital age? And why do you think we, in many ways, self-medicate with these technologies, especially with social media. I know when I'm having a hard day, I'm kind of drawn. I just want to kind of like chill out and just pull up my my phone and scroll through Twitter or something like that. I think we
0: often use these tools to self-medicate. Why do you think that is the case? So this is actually one of the other, um sort of inspirations from the book is writing the first book, which took a very hard look at technology, which I, which I still have a pretty hard stance on technology as a, as a source of distraction in our lives, which often turns us away from our own sin and our own uh, problems so that we end up not facing these things and recognizing the truth. And I, I thought some more about my own use of social media and people I knew in instances where I was fairly confident that the draw was not an avoidance of, of sin, right? So it wasn't an avoidance of, of God or the presence of God, but it was something else. And I was trying to, to sort of figure out, well, what is it? Why would I go to Twitter uh, when, exactly like you're saying, I'm having a bad day? And uh, one of the things that I sort of concluded was that these become what, what you described as uh, coping mechanisms or, or self-medication and I, I do want to make a fine, I, I do want to try to make a distinction, which I try to make in the book, that some of these ways of coping with living in a world that is not in a society that does not treat us as God created us, as fully human, we've got to cope because it's highly stressful. It produces all kinds of anxiety and angst. It wears us out. There's, for example, there's this expectation that you have to work all hours of the day. And, and, and for some of us, we don't feel like we've had a good day unless we come home or we go to sleep and we're exhausted and beat up. And then we can sort of feel like I've justified my day because I've just worked myself to the bone. Um, and of course, when we when we do lie in bed, the only thing we have mental capacity for is to do something like scroll through social media. But I find for myself, sometimes there are ways of doing that that are, that are unhealthy, that are merely diversions. And other times there are... Um, Bits of, oh,, um, I wouldn't call them common grace joy but but moments of pleasure. So for example, I really love puns. I un- unapologetically, I love making jokes on Twitter. and sometimes because I do live in an inhuman society which asks way too much of me, I really don't have the time that I should to spend with friends and to tell the jokes that I'd like to tell. And um, frankly, if I can use Twitter to make a stupid joke, it does bring me a little joy because what it does is it reminds me that whatever suffering I'm currently going through is not the end. It's not the final story. It's not the ultimate conclusion. And that there is a joy, uh, a kind of prodigal joy that we can have as Christians knowing that even in the midst of trials and suffering, Christ is sovereign and so we can laugh. So, uh, what I argue in the book is that, you know, living in an inhuman society really does draw us to these coping mechanisms. Sometimes it is, many times it is technology, but I try to thread this needle and argue that there are ways of coping which are sinful, which are addictive, which are toxic to ourselves, to our bodies, to creation, to our neighbor, Um, but there are others that are gifts from God that we can enjoy. With discernment. To touch a little bit on, on on sort of the negative side of how technology affects us, though, uh, I would go back and and think about this this idea of life as a project. Identity, as I said uh, earlier, was one of these five areas that I think we have responsibilities of self-belonging. And identity is one of the most burdensome ones. We all have to define an identity and express it. As you've talked about on this show many times, expressive individualism is a defining characteristic of our age. Well, social media gives us the 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 tools to do this. We all have, uh, increasing numbers of mediums and methods and ways of projecting our brand out into the world where everyone also is projecting their brand out into the world. And we need more and more ways because we need more and more people seeing us for us to feel like our existence is real and meaningful and true and good. So, Technology is responding to a need that, that society has created in us, but it's also feeding that need and making it worse by addicting us to it.
1: I think that's a really helpful insight, and I hadn't thought about it in exactly those terms, so I really appreciate that. One thing that you mentioned that I want to get dive in a little bit deeper on, though— is specifically about how the gospel message kind of helps to reframe that. So obviously we've talked a lot about the problem so far, we've talked well, kind of how we got to this place, some of the problems itself, but how does the gospel message kind of speak into these inhumane practices and these inhumane, almost this rat race that we've created for ourselves, especially with technology, help to reframe some of those things and help us to understand who we really are.
0: So the second half of this book addresses that very question. And it was a very difficult half to write because I knew that I would like to give and people would like to read a very clear, crisp, you know, five-point step answer to shifting your mindset to fix this problem or how to reclaim the West or America or something and and return to a more godly world. Uh, And I don't have those steps. And it's not very realistic. So I I had to do – the best I could, and I what I tried to argue is is this that uh, when you come to understand and you are reminded regularly that you are not your own but belong to Christ, there is a real comfort, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, there is a real comfort in that. And it's meaningful and it helps you push back. So, for example, uh, it's very common in our culture for people to judge you and your life based on your career success. This is true for men, for women, you know, of all ages, right? What are you achieving? What are you working towards? What is your goal? Uh, These sorts of things. And uh, that can be an overwhelming—and it it is an unbiblical standard because what it implies is the life of someone who has, let's say, a trade and doesn't, quote-unquote, move up, but just is faithful, a faithful servant in what they do, that person's life is somehow less significant, not as fulfilling, not as interesting, not as meaningful. They're going to look back with regret, we would say. Well, that's a lie. And when you know that, when you know that that lie is based on the further lie that you are your own, and so you have to make something dramatic out of yourself, well, that gives you some agency. Now, all of a sudden, when you feel that pressure from other people, you can acknowledge it for what it is. Okay, that's that's the lie. That's the false anthropology of the contemporary world. I know the truth, that I am not my own, but belong to Christ. And that knowledge can ground me and give me hope. But what I want to point out is that society is still going to treat you that way, and that's a difficult tension to bear, right? So people are still going to come up to you, and when you introduce yourself, if, if your career isn't exciting or or you don't seem to be moving somewhere dramatic and interesting in your life, uh, people are going to look at you, and 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 they might uh, move on to someone else. They, they don't find you an interesting person. You don't have anything to offer. You're not a good connection to make. So you're still going to feel those pressures, but you will be equipped with the knowledge to be able to read what those things are and... And I think maybe more importantly, you'll be able to move in small circles, hopefully in churches, to resist, to have pockets of your life where you have friends who don't add to those pressures, but actually encourage you and give you hope and remind you of your identity in, in Christ. So that is a great hope, and it, it is a great comfort. Yeah. One
1: of the things that I I really do enjoy is I really missed out on that five-point plan. That's what I was really hoping you were going to go for there. But (laughs) uh, now that you didn't bring that to us, one of the things that you do though, is you talk about some questions that we can ask ourselves uh, to kind of help us to kind of reorient ourselves to the reality of who God is, how he's created us in his image, and how he calls us to live in this world. What are some of those questions? You talked about one just a minute ago, but what are some of the other questions that might kind of help to penetrate kind of the modern view and kind of modern outlook on life and help us to see through these lies into the reality of how God's created us in his image? What are some of those questions that you would encourage us to ask ourselves?
0: Yeah, so I have been thinking a lot because I work with college students, and they're very— concerned and really anxious about their careers and about their futures, and they have been taught, unfortunately, by people in the church and certainly by people outside the church— to see the decisions they make after college as, as defining decisions, right? So who you marry, what career path you choose, what major you choose, um, these sorts of things are going to define whether you have a rich, fulfilling life where you're following God's calling and you're doing something honorable and significant, or uh, your life is is a waste. And uh, I think that young people in the church need to have, need to hear, Elders, people with, who are, are you know, models of respect, um, leaders reminding them that the good life is a life glorifying God and loving their neighbor. And so when it comes time to think about what should I do with my life, yes, they can ask the question, what do I enjoy doing? Yes, they can ask the question, what am I good at doing it? And yes, they can ask the question, what can I make money at? But they also need to ask the question, what would, what would honor, what would help my community? What does my community really need? And because the answer to that might be, well, our community doesn't need another dentist or it doesn't need another doctor, but it really needs somebody who's willing to do the hard, thankless work of being in a public school a public school teacher or administrator, or 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 maybe you're a plumber, or maybe, you know, any number of things. That, again, you know, you're not moving up. There's no major trajectory to your career, but you're faithfully serving. And so that's, I think, one of these, these questions that, that we can ask ourselves. Uh, practically, I think we could also ask ourselves, you know, when we're making decisions, whether as a, as a corporate body, so we're a, a church or a business, um, or just personal decisions— We should be leery of efficiency. That doesn't mean we do things to be inefficient for the sake of inefficiency. That's just absurdity. But um, what we want to do is we want to assume that for the most part, we are going to be encouraged to see efficiency as the most significant thing. And it's not. It's one factor. And so when we're making decisions— Um, how can we uh, choose to do things that treat our neighbor as created in the image of God? One quick example, um, I was going to a a supermarket uh, with my son, and there was a self-checkout line, and there was a, you know, a cashier. And I went to the cashier, and my son's like, Dad, why are you doing this? It's so much fat. Just do the self-checkout. And so we talked through, okay, well, what happens when they're all self-checkout? You know, what happens to that employee? And that employee lives in our, in our city, right? So they're potentially our, literally our neighbor, right? So what happens when we cease to see our neighbor and even just say hi to them? And the only thing we do is we interact with a computer. And also, we're probably going to scan something wrong and have to get a manager and everybody's going to be mad at us anyway. But that was, a, that was just a small choice. Elul talks about this idea of, uh, he, he says something to the effect of, that we need to learn to choose not to do all that we can do. So we have lots of options. We can always get the newest phone. Yeah, you have that capability. Yeah, you know, you can uh, watch church online instead of going to church, even if restrictions are lifted. Yeah, you have that, you have that uh, capability. Choose not to do that. Choose to do things that are less efficient but are good by some other standard. They're beautiful. They're true. Uh, they're good. Whatever it might be. Um, but not allowing efficiency to conquer everything. Yeah, I think
1: that recapturing that ethic of human dignity is something we talk a lot about here on the podcast and seeing this kind of play through multiple issues. But I think you're especially right in kind of this very modern technological age is that we can choose to do the human thing. We can choose to prioritize humans above machines or above efficiency, and not that these things are bad and we should completely get rid of them in some sense, or, but kind of putting them in their place and understanding, especially within the Christian worldview, focused on who God is, how he's created us, and then how he's called us to live in this world, and what's the proper role of technology. And we've talked a lot about here that here on the podcast as well. One of the things that I always do is we end our time together, um, and you kind of aid readers a lot in this book specifically because you have such a rich bibliography throughout the book. There's tons and tons of really great resources. I wanted you to pull out a few of those. What are a few, a couple resources, and I'll bar you from saying Allul's Technological Society. So other than that, what are some of the books that you would recommend to kind of push people if people wanted to go a little bit deeper into some of these tensions and some of these topics?
0: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, obviously Neil Postman is always, is always helpful. Um, I think Walker Percy's lost in the cosmos. I started writing my book and then I started reading, uh, that book and I realized that this was a, a fictional satirical version of the same thing that I was already, you know, I had been trying to write, um, which is fine. I mean, uh, as I say in the beginning of this book, uh, there's nothing, no argument I make in the book that's original. These are things that people have said for a very long time. Um, But they're worth uh, restating because we still haven't learned the lessons that we need to learn from them. So Lost in the Cosmos is funny and convicting. I would say uh, Joseph Pieper's uh, leisure, the the basis of culture, because there you're going to get an alternative vision. So what as Christians could we do? And I think one of the answers he would give is that Christians should be known as a people who can legitimately rest – legitimately rest in a world that suggests that if you stop working to hold your life together, it's going to collapse. So you should use every day of the week to get ahead. Right. So I think that one's really good. Zygmunt Bauman's uh, liquid modernity is very, very good. Uh, And then uh, um, I can't, I'm, I'm not sure his first name, but his last name is Einrenberg um, the weariness of the self is just a fantastic it's – a, it's a very academic and dry at points, but it's a study of the history of, of depression and anxiety in the modern world. And it's, it's very revealing about where our anxieties come from, and so I, I, I quote him a lot.
1: Yeah, those are really helpful. And for listeners' sake, we'll make sure to link to all of those in the show notes so you can grab a link to those, including your new book, Alan. I really appreciated this book. Highly recommend listeners to grab a copy of it. You Are Not Your Own from IVP. Um, It's his new book. It'll be linked in the show notes as well so you can grab a copy of that. But thank you so much for joining us here on the Digital Public Square. It's been a really fascinating conversation. I always love engaging with you, hearing from you, and learning from you. So just thank you so much for writing this book and then joining us today. Thank you. It's been fun. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Noble and learn more about his book as well as the recommended resources he mentioned in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the ethical issues of technology today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at JasonThacker.com slash Weekly Tech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.